Well, good morning, everybody. We've got a lot to cover this morning. We're going to get back into our study of Joel. I'm going to pray for our time of teaching, and then we're going to jump into Joel chapter 3. So let's pray. And Lord, as we open up the book of Joel, and then we start looking at events that are coming, I pray that you would touch our hearts. I pray that we would understand the correct lessons to draw from the text. And I pray, Lord, that as we think through the implications of what's here, that it will impact how we think and interact with the world around us. We love you, Lord, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am excited after a month, unexpectedly a month away, to be back. And I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of where we are because it's very important when we jump into Joel chapter 3 to remember where we have been. It's interesting the way this book plays out because the initial chapter is dealing with God's judgment on the people right then. And it has an urgency to them as to what's going on. And chapter 2 opens with them being warned that if you don't repent, something greater is coming. And then things shift a little bit. Because it takes, the focus comes off of the immediacy of their circumstances, although it impacted their circumstances. And we begin to see from Joel a picture of what's going to happen one day at a day that's referred to as the day of the Lord. A great and terrible day it's referred to. And as we got to the end of chapter 2, a lot of the focus as we were going through it was on what does this mean because Peter quoted those verses in the book of Acts and God pouring out his spirit and all of those things. But when we sum up what was going on, the reality is we were being given a picture of a time in the future that involves the great tribulation. It involves the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming. It involves the setting up of the millennial kingdom. It involves that time when God is going to supernaturally intervene and fulfill what's stated in Romans when all Israel will be saved. I realize as I have been thinking through this over the last few months and studying it, it really is hard to comprehend what's going to occur. You can study Daniel, you can study Revelation, and we can understand some things, but what we do know with all of it is that God is going to intervene in a way that he's never intervened in human affairs and resolve some of the guilt of all that's transpired of sin that's heaped up over the millennia. Now, of course, Jesus resolved all guilt and all sins problems for believers in Jesus Christ. And it's through the blood of Jesus, even in that future time when all Israel will be saved. But we understand and believe in the Bible that God distinguishes between those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and those who haven't. And so as Joel is going through chapter 2, he's encouraging the people that if your faith is in the Lord, you are secure. And he's also pointing to that future day when the nation of Israel will receive everything that God promised them. In chapter 2, verse 27, he says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. And as we taught through that over a period of time, we recognize that's not happened yet. Because the people of God, Israel, the Jews, have been subjected to shame throughout their history. 
We've seen in our lifetime the horrific circumstances of World War II and what the Nazis did. And we see even the war after war in the Middle East that have been fought. And so Joel, through, of course, the Spirit of God, is pointing forward to the future time, a time even beyond our future, where he's making it clear that whatever is going on now, God will take care of everything. And that was what the very end of chapter 2 was talking about in relation to God's people. Verse 28, he says, it will come about after this, meaning after that time when God has secured his people and he's in their midst and they are secure. That's when he'll pour out on his spirit on all of the Jewish believers. And there'll be prophecy and dreaming of dreams and visions and it's going to be young and old, not just a few select people, but male and female servants. It's this picture of God pulling together and doing something supernatural. And there's going to be wonders in the sky and on the earth, and you'll see the effects probably of wars going on all around. It says, verse 31, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, there's a climax of history that's building. And it's building and it's building and it's building. That great and awesome day of the Lord. And verse 32 contains the great promise. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. In other words... As the day of the Lord is approaching, as that cataclysmic day of judgment is happening, Israel is now secure. They're not going to be put to shame. They're gathered back to the land. The remnant of Israel will be saved in its entirety in the great tribulation. They'll be gathered in Jerusalem where God will protect them. God's not done with that land, that place on the map today that is in the Middle East. His people will be there. They will have called on him. They will escape judgment. They will never be put to shame. They are the survivors in the midst of the horror of a judgment that's poured out on the earth. God will bring them to safety. That is their hope. And as we transition, though, to chapter 3, we see the other side of the coin. While Israel will be completely secure and safe and protected by God... There's a time of reckoning for those who have been enemies of his people. For those who have attacked and destroyed and abused the Jews. It's that great and awesome the day of the Lord when accounts will be settled by God himself. God doesn't forget his promises. That day of reckoning is coming and I'm convinced that day of reckoning is related to a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, has a text that many of us are familiar with because it's actually, in one sense, it's a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah. He says, and I will bless those who bless you, talking about Abraham and his descendants, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We understand on this side of the cross, 
that the blessing to all the families of the earth, even the Gentiles, was because Jesus, the Messiah, the physical descendant of Abraham, came. But there's a line in there that directly is related to what we're studying in Joel chapter 3. And the one who curses you, I will curse. I've shared this before, I think in my teaching on Joel, probably in other teachings, but I will never forget. I have a, my mom's mom, a wonderful lady, my granny. Um, she's in heaven with the Lord. But I remember talking to her when I was a teenager, and she was a humble woman. She got a little bit of study for the Bible, but she didn't have the opportunity for education. She, nowadays, it's not considered appropriate, but she got married at 14 and was married to my grandpa for 50 years. They had 10 kids. But I remember, I wasn't even a genuine believer, but God was showing me truth. And I remember how she emphasized that verse as being the key to America's future. Because she said, God blesses those that bless his people, and we're doing that. But if you turn your back on Israel, if you go against Israel, you're going against God. Even today, even though most physical descendants of Abraham have rejected the Messiah, even though most of them, because of their rejection, will wind up in the fate of the Pharisees, separated from God for eternity, it still matters to God that they are the descendants of Abraham. The geography of the Middle East still matters to God. Joel chapter 3 is dealing with that issue. Salvation is always still through faith in Jesus Christ, but he still has a special place in his heart for the Jewish people and the land. So as we come into chapter 3, we're transitioning from the security of Israel to the coming judgment. And as I read several commentators, they had imagery because of the genre this is in poetic terms of the Hebrew. They mentioned things about court and stuff and being a lawyer that just resonated with me and really this is a picture of God's courtroom so as I broke this text down and I think it flows from the text I don't think I'm imposing on the text but it's representative we are seeing a picture of the courtroom of God and that really is the heading or the message the title of this message it's a picture of the courtroom of God and we're going to see four things in that courtroom I'm going to try and get through all eight verses. I don't normally go through that much. But this is a bigger picture item, so I hope I can do it. And if I run over a few minutes, I will plead with you for mercy, but I want to try and get through all of this. A picture of the courtroom of God, the first thing we see are the subpoenaed parties, the summoned parties. Verse 1 says this, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I'll stop right there. Again, the setting for this courtroom scene is tied directly to what has just occurred, which is why I was emphasizing it again. Israel is secure. God has anchored them in the land. He is over them. They have come to faith in Christ. 
when you read the book of Revelation, and when we talked about it earlier, there's 144,000 who are going to be miraculously saved, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. God's going to use all of those events to bring together his people. And in those days and at that time when the fortunes of God's people have been restored, not just his people, but also his city, Jerusalem, God says, at that point, I'm going to start moving. I will gather all the nations now, we're going to see in just a moment that this isn't every single nation. This is every nation that's mistreated his people. But the point being, God knows and God pays attention. And at that time, he's going to summon all of the people who have been abusing his people. And he's going to bring them together. He says, I'll gather all the nations. In other words, God and his marshals are issuing summons and you can't avoid it. God's not inviting them. You can't get your lawyer to ask for an extension. It's going to happen. No one can ignore God's gathering. And he says he's going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, as far as we know, if you look at a map, we don't know exactly where a valley of Jehoshaphat is. And really, for our sakes, it doesn't matter. But Jehoshaphat really means Yahweh judges. That's what this is about. Now, in any mountainous area, and Israel certainly mountainous if you've been there, there are valleys everywhere. So there are any number of places it could be, but what you see over and over in Scripture is God using valleys to describe judgment. So, for example, in Jeremiah 7, 32... Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hemon, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place. And there's a picture in the book of Zechariah, and some people think this picture is the valley of Jehoshaphat. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's a picture when God is going to create a valley by literally splitting the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 5. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. But the ultimate point of the valley of Jehoshaphat isn't to go and dig through and find a location. It's to understand that God is going to summon the people that are going to give an account to him. He's going to bring them to his courtroom the valley of Yahweh's judgment. And when he gets them there, there's going to be a trial. And that brings us to the second part of the picture of God's courtroom. Not just the subpoenaed witnesses, but the charges revealed. The charges revealed. The second part of verse 2 says this, Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, 
whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. This really is the crux of the issue for what's going on in this courtroom. Now we have to step back and anytime you're looking at a specific thing like this in Scripture, we have to understand there's bigger picture going on. In fact, everyone apart from Jesus Christ is going to stand before the Lord in judgment. Not just these nations. Hebrews 9.27 And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Matthew 25 has one of the most terrifying pictures of that judgment. Beginning at verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. So Joel, by focusing on certain nations, is in no way saying that the other people are escaping judgment. He's just showing us a snapshot of on the great day of judgment, this is one part of it. This is just one aspect of the courtroom. I was not a criminal attorney by choice. I wasn't a trial attorney by choice. But I've been in courtrooms before. And there's a lot of cases going on. Sometimes almost it seems like at the same time. There's a lot of judgment that's going to happen on the day of the Lord. This is a snapshot of a specific type and aspect and reason for judgment. And it's interesting because God's there on behalf of my people and my inheritance. In other words, God's motivated by a love for his people. And who or what are the charges? What's the big picture? Whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. This really sums it up. You've hurt my people and you've messed with my land. My people, my inheritance. They're God's people still, and it's still God's land. And he's saying, you've messed with my people, you've stolen my land. That's the picture. Whom they have scattered among the nations. In other words, the idea is they've been removed from where they started. That's happened throughout the history of the Jewish people. The Assyrian army did that to the northern kingdoms while it hasn't happened yet we don't believe in our study of Joel after Joel a generation that rose after this was taken into captivity by the Babylonians later in their history the Persians messed with them the Greeks messed with them the Romans messed with them fast forward into our lifetime the Nazis messed with them Lesser known, but the Soviets messed with them. And even today, in the Middle East, people are messing with them. It's fascinating, if you look at history, how many attempts, and I believe they're satanically inspired, how many attempts have been made to remove God's people from God's land. In fact, to deny that it even is God's land. But again, God takes a long view of everything and this all goes back to promises and declarations God made in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the promise of the land. 
Beginning of verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And then verse 3 that we've already read, I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. Seminary professor used to always stress to us that the promise was land, seed, descendants, and blessing. Later in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Here's what's indisputable from Scripture and we believe scripture, God gave certain land to a certain people and he meant it. So the charges that they've scattered among the nations, in other words, you took my people and you did all that and they divided up my land, you act like it's not mine, it's yours. The history of the Jewish people going back to Genesis chapter 12 is people trying to get them out of the land and trying to stop them from being a people. And Joel's telling us God remembers. Now what's fascinating is God in Deuteronomy, through Moses, promised Israel, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. And one of the things that God laid out as a curse for disobedience is I'll remove you from the land. So there's a sense in which some of the removal was done by God and yet God still holds to account those evil people by whom he executed judgment because their hearts were still wicked and sinful. Jeremiah 25 provides a summary of this. There are several other places where you could find it. But Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 8 and 9 says this. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and not take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations around about it, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and everlasting desolation. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to use Babylon to execute judgment because you keep rebelling against me, my people. And yet later in Jeremiah 25, it's clear that the Babylonians don't get a free pass in all this. Verse 12 through 14. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Verse 14 is very interesting. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. So certainly throughout the history of his people, God for his own purposes at times stepped in and dealt with them and disciplined them for their disobedience. But God doesn't forget anything and he's pointing to a day in the future when all of these accounts will be settled. That's what Joel's doing. He's moving fast forward and he's saying the day of recompense has arrived. 
So here's the basic charges. You messed with my people. You stole my land. And now God the prosecutor begins to lay out some specifics. That's the third part of the picture of the courtroom of God. We've got the subpoenaed witnesses. The charges revealed. Third, the evidence presented. The evidence presented. Now, I think what is being presented here are big picture aspects, and it's highlighting particular things that are offensive to God. Certainly, it's not an exhaustive catalog of offenses against God's people and against his land. The Bible would be gazillion times longer if every little detail was listed, but he's representing for us the types of things that cause God to say on that great and terrible day, that great and awesome day of the Lord, you're going to give an account. Verse 3 says this, They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. What is pictured here is something that shows the disdain of God's enemies for God's people. Human beings, in this case, God's own people, were being treated as though they were disposable and worthless. Casting lots for people is just a picture of casual game playing. As though you forget that there's a human being created in the image of God in front of you. It's just, let's roll the dice and let's see who gets who. Obviously for us, we remember the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. It was just trivial gambling. That's what's being pictured. They're casting lots for my, God's chosen people and you're just... They were disposable and worthless. And it was all sinful wickedness. He said, traded a boy for a harlot. It's, it's a picture, of course, of selling people, human trafficking. But it's showing how trivial it is. It's like, I'll give you this person just for a night with a prostitute. In other words, for, for nothing. There's no value. And sold a girl for wine that they may drink. In other words, hey, let's get drunk. We'll sell, here, we'll sell you one of the kids. For things that have no value. There's no lasting anything. It's a picture of the contempt and the disgust and the disdain that these nations showed to God's precious chosen people. And it matters. Now in one sense, in all these millennia, humanity hasn't improved we don't have human slavery exactly in America, but we treat human life just as trivially as garbage. The rampant abortion, the use of drugs, and people don't even care that people are ODing in record numbers. Sex trafficking, and there's always a constant movement to legalize sex work, which is just another way of saying we'll enslave people for their bodies. To God, every human life is precious. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for him. In the image of God, he made man. Even our sinful, fallen, corrupted states, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Something of the image of God still resides in each one of us and God cares. And he cares even 
in a special way with a special love for the Jewish people. God is saying, look, I have all the evidence I need of your guilt. Look how you treated my people as gambling trinkets, as something to be frittered away in sinful revelry as for a few bucks to live for your flesh. Zechariah 2.8 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. God himself can judge his own children for their sin, but they're still his children. And he still cares. And he's still taking note of what people have done and what people are doing to his children. Now God adds some more evidence in the courtroom to the charge and what he does is he takes a subset of the nations and he uses a specific example as again representative of the people that are going to be in court on that day. Verse 4, the beginning part. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? Now, Tyre and Sidon were part of an area known as Phoenicia. They were wealthy ports trading on the Mediterranean Sea. The Philistines, we recognize that name from the Bible. They were a bane of the existence at many times in Israel's history. But they also had port cities. If you look at a map... North is Phoenicia, south was Philistia, the areas. So God's saying, look, and he's using them representative, why are you messing with me? What are you to me? In other words, why are you messing with me, meaning you're messing with my people and my land? Are you rendering me a recompense? In other words, did I do something to you? This is not going to go well for those people. They don't even have an excuse. God's saying, are you trying to hurt me? Which of course would be foolish. But God's saying, what you did to my children, you did to me. Jesus said something very similar. Again, it's the Bible, of course, is a unity. That picture of judgment in Matthew 25 Verse 44 to 45, Jesus goes through and he said to goats, you, you didn't do these things. You didn't give me this. You didn't give me this. You didn't give me this. Clothing or food, all these things. In verse 44, then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In other words... How you treat my people is how you treat me. That's exactly what's being said in Joel. And God's saying, look, I'm going to make all this, I'm going to pull this all together. And he adds more evidence of the charges. But he says, if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. We'll come back to that because he's going to say, be careful. You push me. There's something there. But verse 5, he lays out more evidence. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order 
to remove them far from their territory. Again, we see this commonality of you took my stuff, my silver, my gold. In other words, when these nations were looting the Jewish people, God is saying, you weren't picking their pockets, you were picking my pocket. When you took their stuff to your pagan temples, you were taking my stuff. And again, you come back to this slavery. You sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks. The scholars say that the word Greeks is actually Ionians, which were a people on the Mediterranean. But it's their motivation. In order to remove them from their territory, again, you come back to this effort to remove God's people from God's land. And God, the prosecutor, lays it out. I got you. You stole my money. You stole my gold. You stole my people. They were trying to undo God's promise. They were trying to kick the Jews out of Israel. And I'll come back to that, but of course, it's still occurring today. It never stops. So God, as prosecutor, has overwhelming evidence of their guilt. Their disdain for his people, treating them as nothing selling them off, stealing their money. And there's no defense. It's been clear. He's already declared them guilty. And that brings us to the last picture in the courtroom of God. The witnesses, the charges, the evidence, finally the verdict rendered. The verdict rendered. God had already alluded to the fact in the second part of verse 4 that if you're trying to pay me back, I'm going to pay you back. But verse 7 says, Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. And this is a picture, again, of God's justice. Now, the Bible's clear for us, we never repay evil for evil. We never get revenge. No doubt part of that is because we're supposed to model Christ, and it's not that we're supposed to revel in evil or injustice, but we're not God. But God is a God of justice, and it says He's going to arouse His people, them as His people. In other words, that's that regathering we already talked about. God's going to stir them up, God's going to save them, and they're going to come back, and they're going to be unbeatable. In fact, God's saying, I'll reverse the scales on you. You subjugated my people, they'll subjugate you. I think this is more of a picture of judgment than a literal saying there's going to be slavery at that moment but the idea is what you tried to do to me is going to happen to you Romans 12 19 is a familiar verse and as I read it I always think of one part of it never take your own revenge beloved but leave room for the wrath of God now, I always focus on never take your own revenge because that's us. We can't take revenge. But listen to the rest of the verse. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what Joel's talking about. And Joel makes it emphatic. 
God has spoken. It says, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, take it to the bank. It's going to happen. That day is coming. This is such an important picture for a lot of reasons. Some of them, it shows us what's going to happen in the future. Although I think from what my study of Scripture, we won't be there. We'll be with Jesus by then, but it is going to happen. And it's always helpful, and at times it can be evangelistic to talk to people about what's coming. And it's always encouraging to know that God always wins, no matter what. Yay, team, we're on the winning team. But, and this is important, it shows how seriously God takes what we refer to as anti-Semitism. God still takes the hatred of his people very seriously, even if his people are in unbelief at the moment. It's not just the saved Jewish people that God cares about, like Pastor Steve or one of our missionaries in Israel, Menno Kalisher. He cares about the descendants of Abraham. And yet the history of the world shows nothing but consistent hatred of the Jews. It really is remarkable how consistent it's been throughout history. You go back to the time of Egypt, a place that originally provided refuge for Joseph and his family became a place of enslavement. And then you read through the scriptures of how the Philistines always came against them and various other peoples and Assyria and Babylon. And then the Romans and what they did. It would turn your stomach, but one of the heroes of the Reformation is Martin Luther. You've not seen anybody that spouted more anti-Semitic views than Martin Luther. It's a distorted, twisted reading of Scripture that came to him. And in fact, if you trace history further, Martin Luther was Jewish. Some of his ideas were formed the basis. I'm not blaming him for it in any way. Don't misunderstand. But the ideas he espoused were ideas adopted by later generations of Germans, which ultimately were embraced and picked up by the Nazis and Hitler. And it's fascinating because for a brief moment after World War II, the nations felt guilty after the Holocaust and seeing the horrors of the attempted extermination of an entire people group and they gave them a little sliver of land. It's not the promised land entirely. When Abraham looked northward and southward and eastward and westward, it's a lot bigger even than the current state of Israel. But as soon as the flag went up, they were attacked from day one. And it never stopped. Happened in the 40s, happened in the 50s, massive war in 67, even bigger war in 73, and the attacks have never stopped. In fact, they continue on. Now, this is not a political issue, and I'm not making a statement, and the government of Israel makes mistakes, and everything they do isn't insulated from criticism. Don't misunderstand but it matters very much the attitude of any nation, including our own, to Israel. God sees, God knows, God cares. And again, there's no illusions. Israel is populated by sinners. Their government is headed by sinners, just like our government. But there's still a unique place in God's economy for them 
And it concerns me more what our country does to Israel than anything else that goes on. Because at the end of the day, God will bless those who bless his people and he'll curse those who curse them. Anti-Semitism isn't going away. Make sure it's not a part of your heart. Examine your attitudes towards the Jewish people. Stereotypes. I'll never forget the first time I heard something anti-Semitic. I didn't even know what I heard, but somebody used the word Jew as a verb and I didn't even understand what they meant. I was in junior high. I still remember the person. I won't say his name. He's dead. He knows better. But be careful with your heart. Again, they're still sinners. They need the gospel. But make sure that you always realize that God still has a special place in his heart for the apple of his eye. So as we continue in the future weeks, we're going to be seeing the rest of the judgment playing out. And I think we're going to get through chapter 3 a little bit quicker because we've laid the groundwork. But I'm looking forward to our next study. Please join me as I close today in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, at times we are stretched by how redemptive history plays out. Lord, on the one hand, we see that you've judged your people, that you've judged them for their disobedience and rebellion. Lord, the Jewish people were the ones that you sent Jesus to first and they ultimately crucified him. And yet, Lord, you're clear in your word there's something special about the descendants of Abraham. I pray, Lord, that as history plays out, you'll protect our country. Lord, our hope's not here on this earth. Our ultimate citizenship is not in America. It's in heaven, but we still live here, Lord. So we pray that you'll protect our nation so that we can worship, so that we can be free to share the gospel, so that we can proclaim you. And Lord, help our leaders have the right attitude towards the nation of Israel. We're not a political church and I don't ever want to preach a political message, Lord, because that's not what you've called me to do. But the implications of your word are clear and they do have real world consequences. So I pray that you will help our nation remain on the side of your people so that perhaps in some way, despite our increasing wickedness as a country and despite our increasing shaking our fist at you and in spite of our increasing evil, there'll still be some place in your heart to bless us. And Lord, as we continue studying this book, I pray that you give me wisdom and give us ears to hear. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.